Well, hello and good morning. My name's Thomas and uh, I'm one of your pastors here. It's good to see you again. Uh, with all these changes we've had, you know, indoor, outdoor, I think maybe one good thing about being inside is I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get a sunburn today. So that's nice. Unless Phil turns the lights up really high, I, I feel pretty good about that. But um, it's good to be back together. It's good to just remember and as we're just singing and I'm just thinking the mercy of Jesus is truly just so wonderful. And it, it is good to sing together, though we're separate. And uh, I, I feel a special sense of connection uh, with all of you as we sing of Christ's mercy. Um, if it can go from, from, from Calvary to us today, uh, it certainly can go from your living room to me, that, that sort of connection between us and between us and Christ as we celebrate his mercy. So it's good that we can also uh, hear from God's word today. We'll be in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to get out your Bible, still a great practice when you're at home to get out your Bible and have it in front of you. We can sort of focus on the passage at hand, and that'll be in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. Uh, today we're continuing our series on the topic of sanctification. We've called it Becoming Who We Are in Christ. That is, at, at the moment that we trust Christ, uh, we become holy in the sense that, that God the Father looks at us and, and doesn't see our mess, but sees Christ's perfection. And yet, uh, while that, that holiness, that righteousness is real, um, it, it, even at that moment, hasn't begun to bear all of the fruit that it will. Um, and so there's this process, this lifelong process that we read about in the New Testament of, of beginning to become what we already are in Christ. And uh, while salvation is totally a work of God, sanctification uh, gives us a role to play. God does not leave us alone uh, to sort of figure things out, uh, but actually leads us, guides us, and today especially we see by the Holy Spirit uh, to, to become more like Christ. Um, I've thought about this series kind of like um, going to the eye doctor. Maybe that's one of those uh, appointments that's gotten laid off for you a little bit. Maybe you've missed, you know, going to the do eye doctor. Maybe you've missed going to the dentist. Or maybe you haven't missed going to the dentist, if we're honest. Um, but going to the eye doctor, I know some people don't like going to the eye doctor either. Um, I don't mind it. Uh, in fact, my favorite part of it is uh, when they, you know, they put you in the weird goggle seat and they give you the number one, number two. Okay? Which one's better? Number one, number two. Number one. Or number two, number one, number two. I, I sort of like that. Uh, I, I get to sort of evaluate and look, okay, and, and in each case, one of them is a little bit sharper than the other, and I think this one looks a little bit distorted, and so number one, yep, number two, that one, number two, number one. Uh, and, and the series has felt a little bit like that to me. Um, in each case, we sort of had these varying images each week of what sanctification is. Number one, number two. We had dying and living in Christ. We had slavery to sin versus sonship, uh, in Christ. And this week, we, we come to the image of conflict, the image of conflict. And specifically, uh, Paul wants to tell us in Galatians 5 about the incompatibility between our old way of living apart from God and the new way that is ushered in by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let me read Galatians 5, uh, 16 through 17 to you. And just like that eye exam, I pray that today, and I have been praying that today uh, will be a day where we get a sharper vision uh, of who we are in Jesus and what that means for our lives today. So Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things 
you want to do. Now, I, I want you to hear today, Parkview, from Galatians 5, 16 through 17, that we must engage spiritual conflict by the power of the Spirit. Engage spiritual conflict by the power of the Spirit. And specifically today, uh, this passage is going to call us to two specific responses to spiritual conflict that we must embrace in order to live lives that honor God. Two responses that we'll get to in just a moment. But first, uh, we'll never understand and grow and change unless we ask God for help. It's something we need him to do. So let's pray. Let's go to him now. Father, thank you so much, first of all, that we can call you Father. That, that in Christ you have brought us into the family of God and now you, have, you are beginning to mold us to bear the family resemblance of Jesus. Uh, we pray for all of us in this room, the few of us that are here, and for all of us scattered across uh, this, the area of Southeast Iowa, that you would do a mighty work by applying Galatians 5, 16 through 17 to our lives today so that we would become a church that bears all the fruit, all of the, all of the results, all of the natural outflow of having and being led by and powered by your Holy Spirit. So please do that today, we ask. Make your scripture clear to us. Help me, Father, to speak clearly about what you want to say and, and use us and use this, this moment to make us more like your son. For your glory, we pray. Amen. So the first response to spiritual conflict that this passage calls us to is, is to recognize the inevitability of spiritual conflict. That's our first response, is to recognize the inevitability of spiritual conflict. Uh, we see this in verse 16, and, and really in both of these, but in verse 16 especially it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And, and again, going on at 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. It's the language of conflict. Paul says there are two ways to walk, two ways to live, and they're completely opposed. Paul portrays the Christian life in terms of a pure opposition. There are two elements that Paul says are present in the Christian life, but they're mutually exclusive. They are diametrically opposed. They are completely against one another. And these two elements are clear. On the one hand, we have the flesh, what Paul calls the flesh, which we'll, we'll begin to describe a little bit in a second. But on the other hand, it's the spirit. Uh, and, and Paul uses the strongest possible language in, in the original language in Greek. He uses the, the most extreme phrase that he can to illustrate this. It doesn't quite come through in English, but in verse 16, Paul uses a double negative, which for anyone who speaks English and, and knows how it works, double negatives don't work in English. They don't, they don't make sense. But in Greek, to use a double negative, it says, but I say, if I were to do it literally and it'll sound silly, walk by the Spirit and you will never, ever, you will not, not, you will not, not ever gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't, it sounds weird to us, but if we were to translate this and sort of paraphrase it, it would sound something like, walk by the Spirit and indulging the flesh will be completely impossible. It, it will never happen. You can see, even, even just on this cursory glance, that it's very important if we're going to understand this passage that we understand what Paul means when he says the word flesh. Very important. Uh, Paul does not, uh, as we'll see, if we were studying the whole book of Galatians, I would unpack this a little more, but we'd see that Paul does not mean literal flesh. He doesn't mean, you know, this kind of stuff here on your arms and your stuff, legs. No, that's not quite what it means. He's, it, this isn't sort of a body versus spirit, you know, 
ignore everything that your body says and do what the Holy Spirit says, that sort of change? No. Um, God made our bodies. He seems to like them. There's not, they're not horrible in general. Um, what Sinclair Ferguson says about the flesh is this. He says, the flesh, the way that Paul uses it here, is human nature not only weakened and twisted and enslaved to the power of sin, but alienated from God and in the grip of the evil one. It's, it's something about our nature. It's something about who we are. Now, no matter who you are today, the Bible is clear, there is a deadly danger in your life. Uh, the flesh is not something that you sort of accumulate over a lifetime until, you know, you sort of become fleshly or, you know, it happens when you're five or it happens when you're 15 or something. No, it's what every person, every one of us who are humans are born into. Apart from Christ, in fact, it's our only nature. The flesh is the only spiritual presence in our life, a nature that's bent on opposing God and his purposes in the world and in our own lives. It's, it's the nature that will not bend the knee to anyone, especially God. Now, you might hear that and go, I know lots of people who, who aren't Christians and they don't sound quite like that. And, and, and what's not being said here, it's not as if, uh, you know, the flesh means that we sort of are atheist unbelievers who are just sort of immoral, horrible people. No. Uh, in every case, though, the flesh does try to, to find a way to get us to live in a, in a way that boxes out the reality of, that we are needy, contingent beings who can only find life by asking and begging God for rescue. It's that vulnerability, that need that the flesh tries to ignore, push away, and try to be self-sufficient. In many cases, what we might think of as flesh uh, looks quite civil. You know, we can find a way to sort of shine up our lives, shine up our sins, and rationalize our choices. In fact, that's one of the, one of the most effective strategies of the flesh uh, is, is to be covert, to sneak in under the radar and, and, and get us to live lives without thinking about them uh, that are, are really actually opposed to God. Um, but at its deepest level, the flesh is just the part of us, the, the part of our nature that refuses to be ruled. And like I said, everyone is in the flesh. Uh, everyone. But the Christian doesn't just have the flesh. They have something else too. They have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes into our lives when we, when we trust Christ, not as an advisor or as a comforting helper or a guru or uh, someone I can sort of look to for general answers or advice or a co-pilot, God help us. No. Uh, rather, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives as the actual power and presence of God on earth so that uh, God can actually call his church the temple of God. It's, it's where God rules and dwells and reigns. Everything that God is, the Holy Spirit is. Everything that Jesus is, the Spirit is. Everything that the Father is, the Spirit is. The Spirit's goal in our life is the same as his goal everywhere and at all times, and that is that every person everywhere, but especially us in our lives, would obey and submit to Jesus that we would do what God wants us to do. Brings conviction of sin, points us to Jesus for, with the goal of making us look more like Jesus and submitting to him. Now, even from that, that brief explanation, it must become immediately obvious that these two elements in our lives can never, ever peacefully coexist. One of them is urging us toward a life that ignores God, 
and the other is urging us toward a life that fully submits to God. They, they could not be in more direct opposition. Uh, we must recognize, therefore, uh, the inevitability of spiritual conflict in our lives. The inevitability that will, there will be an ongoing act of, of, uh, of aggression toward one and the other within us. Um, I, I think because of Hollywood, it's almost inevitable to envision that Christians sort of, maybe you'd imagine kind of walking through life and we've got the angel on one shoulder, right? You've got the, the demon on one shoulder and one sort of like, do this bad thing. And the angel says, no, you really ought to do this thing. Uh, maybe that's a little bit helpful, but I, I don't think that's quite right. No, no, no. Uh, in fact, I'd say we're more like tadpoles. I should probably explain a little bit more. Um, tadpoles are very interesting creatures. Tadpoles uh, start life underwater, uh, and, and they're taking in oxygen through their gills. If you don't know what a tadpole is, it's a baby frog. Okay, we're good. Uh, and, and they begin life under, underwater, and essentially they're fish. They have gills. They get oxygen through water that's dissolved in water. Uh, but then they go through this incredible process, and if you've ever done this, I highly recommend, go get some tadpoles and have your kids or, or just do it yourself, you know, and watch them as they undergo this process that's called metamorphosis. And their gills are discarded, and they grow lungs. Uh, and so now they go through this process where they get oxygen from underwater, uh, and they're actually sort of sea creatures to this point where they become creatures that live on land. They have a totally new source of life as a result of that transformation. But while they're tadpoles, they, they undergo this transformation where they're somehow both at the same time land and sea creatures. Uh, they can sort of equally inhabit both of those spaces. They can either get up on the land or stay in the water. At, at that point, there's an overlap in their natures. They are, they are destined to be land creatures, and yet at that moment, uh, they're still sea creatures. So also it is with, with believers. Um, we are destined to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to, to love him above all, uh, to be completely undivided in our devotion to him, in our affections for him, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our deeds. Every part of us is destined for that. And yet at the same time, there's this flesh that is still a part of us. And yet it's not as if there's sort of one on one shoulder and one on the other, sort of equally powerful and mighty. No. The flesh is this sort of constantly dying, groaning, uh, soon-to-give-way feature of our lives while the spirit is ever-increasing in power. There, there, it's, it's more like an overlap. The flesh is here, and the flesh has a date of death that is coming. And the spirit will never die. The spirit will be constantly growing in power. And we are the, at the overlap of two natures, two ages, two realities in our lives. One that is ever increasing, growing brighter and brighter and more powerful every day, and one that is fading away and one day will be buried and gone. Now, Unlike with the example with the tadpole, this is not a natural process. It is not something that without any input from us will simply happen day by day. No. Uh, it's a conflict. Uh, for, so that we can say, for a Christian uh, to choose sin, to choose to obey the flesh in, uh, rather than the spirit, it would be like a tadpole one day saying, you know what, I don't think I'd like to become a frog. I think I would like to stay a fish. I'm just going to stay here. And while its gills go away and it, it begins to suck water into its lungs, it just says, ah, this is fine. I think I'll just do it. What's going to happen? 
It, it will not go well for that tadpole. It's going to die, right? It would be deadly nonsense to do that. The same way as it would be for a Christian who goes back and says, I think I will follow the flesh. No, you're gulping salt water. Don't do it. But we stand at that crossroads every day. That's the reality that Paul is getting to, this conflict, this spiritual conflict that we must recognize. The question for us is, will we grow into our new reality in Christ? Will we make those decisions, a thousand of them a day, uh, that will determine that? Our new, our true self, our deepest true self? Or will we regress in deadly nonsense and follow the flesh? Now, you might be wondering, Thomas, uh, recognize the inevitability. Of course, you know, it's, it's there. Uh, but why, why would our lesson be just to recognize it? Well, in my experience, there's, there are many ways to sort of bungle uh, sanctification and, and growth in the Christian life. But the worst way to lose a spiritual conflict, or any conflict by that matter, for that matter, is, is also the quickest, it's the quietest, and therefore the most deadly, is to simply know that not recognize a conflict at all to be asleep on the battlefield. Uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, there was a, a, a Chinese uh, philosopher named Sun Tzu, and he wrote the, a book called The Art of War, and it's sort of been a classic military strategy book slash life inspiration, sort of whatever. Um, but one of the quotes I've read from it that I thought was really helpful here is this. He says, If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you do not need to fear the result of a hundred battles. Uh, if you know yourself, but you don't know the enemy, then for every victory gained, you'll also suffer defeat. But if you don't know the enemy and you don't know yourself, then you will succumb in every battle. The greatest danger that we could possibly have in the, in the midst of spiritual conflict is to not be aware of the reality of spiritual conflict. To not even know what's going on in front of us. So step one is to simply recognize that conflict is happening. You know, there's a reason that militaries all over the year have spent billions and trillions of dollars to develop stealth technology. Why? Because uh, if, if you can get in and attack your enemy without them ever even knowing that you were there, where'd that, come, where'd that explosion come from? Where did that, what? What happened? You, you'll never lose. You're guaranteed a victory. Now, I think what we have to say then is this. If, if you don't see areas in your life of obvious conflict between the flesh and the spirit, it might be that you're just simply not aware, uh, awake to that reality. You know, one way to sort of avoid that conflict is to, is to not even be aware. And I worry that we miss this. I worry that we, we forget that when we claim Christ and, and we come to him and we receive his spirit, that it necessarily means that our lives will change in appreciable ways. You, if you are a Christian and you are not changing, something is going horribly wrong. If, if you are not feeling, and I'm not saying a Christian needs to be this sort of mentally conflicted, always constantly, you know, going crazy inside themselves. No. But do you know where the enemy is coming from? Do you know the, what the flesh is trying to do? And of course, we'll talk in, in a moment about, do you also know the power of the Spirit and what it is trying to do in your life? But do you know what the flesh is trying to do? Christians should look a little weird, the more I've, I've read through the Bible, especially, you know, reading and teaching through First Peter for a Renew series, I was just struck again and again at the expectation that the Bible has. So many chapters of the Bible are written to help Christians deal with the fact, or believers in general, you know, Old Testament, they weren't called Christians, but to, to help believers 
deal with the fact that they are ethical weirdos, distinctive, odd. Their beliefs, their practices were, were strange. Does your life look strange? A little strange, right? Uh, the old question that's kind of corny but I think really helpful and was convicting for me this week was this. If you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Does your life have dis- distinctiveness, di- Christian distinctiveness? Does it look like the Bible expects? To be specific, here, let me probe, let me ask. Do your habits with entertainment look any different than those who don't follow Jesus? If someone was going to guess if you were a Christian based only on your Netflix queue, what would they guess? Based only on your internet browsing history, what would they guess? Does the way you use your money, if they only looked at your bank account, only looked at your credit card statement, would they, would they say, this is weird. Man, they don't spend money like I do. Boy, where's, where is that going? I don't... Here's a good one for today. If, if someone was examining your life and the only evidence they had to look at to wonder whether you were a Christian or not was the way that you interact with people who disagree with you politically, would they think, boy, they don't look like, they don't have that anxiety, they don't have that rage, they don't have that hope that, that I, I expect people to have right now. They're, they interact differently. Would, would they see something distinctive about your life? Uh, if, if we are going to be a church that has any impact on our city, on our world, if we're going to honor God, if we're going to be the people that we're created to be, any of that, simply put, we must be holy. We, we must recognize the, the spiritual conflict that's going on. We must embrace it, know that it's there, be awake in that battle, so that when I sit down with you and I say, how are things going? I, I have to be honest, I often sort of feel like, man, I can't stand when I sit down with someone and, and we're being honest with each other and I say, how are things going? Are you, are, you, are you winning spiritually? Are you conquering sin? And there just isn't much there. We must wake up. We, we will not become holy without conflict. We will not become holy without effort. We, we will not change. Now, remember, there's a difference between earning and effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Uh, grace is opposed to earning. We will not earn our way to growth in Christ, but we will not get there without effort. Um, we are saved by grace alone, uh, and we will be transformed by grace alone, but we must take hold of it. So the first thing that we need to do is to recognize the inevitability of spiritual conflict. Uh, the second thing that we must do, the second thing this passage teaches us, is to remember our role in spiritual conflict. Remember your role, R-O-L-E, in spiritual conflict. Uh, we see this especially in verse 16. It's, it's really, it's the imperative of the passage. It's really the message of this whole sermon because it's the message of the text, and it's this. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's Paul's explicit call to the church in Galatians. It is his call to us today. Walk by the Spirit. Let's think about this for a second. You know, in the midst of Paul's sort of uh, polarizing language about conflict and the polar opposite choices to be made between these two sides, right? Uh, The image of walking, walk by the Spirit, is is not the word that I expect there walk by the Spirit. We're in sort of the, it's a, it's a conflict image. It's a warfare image. It's a, it's a com, complete division and, and walk? I expect something like, 
punch by the Spirit, wrestle by the Spirit, battle by the Spirit, something like that. Walk? It seems like, you know, in terms of the words you would choose, it seems a little pedestrian. But there's an important reason that Paul uses that word there. See, while, while Paul is being emphatic about the nature of the spiritual conflict within us, the conflict between spirit and flesh, he, he never wants us to think that that battle is somehow kind of a fair fight. As if on the one side you have the flesh who's muscled up and ready to go, and here's the spirit who's kind of equally powerful, equally there. No. At the human level, of course, we, we do have an incredible conflict. Because our old ways are, are, man, they're ingrained at times. And it's hard to get out. And it's hard, right? It's difficult. But once that choice is made, it's not as if it's, the battle's over. To walk by the Spirit is to walk in guaranteed victory. To walk in the flesh is to walk in guaranteed defeat. That is to say, our role in spiritual conflict, if you read this carefully, is not that we would sort of get in there and, and, and be fighting. Uh, Paul speaks a little bit about that in other places, but what Paul wants to say here is that it's not our, our, our place to fight and win. It's just our place to choose the winning team. Put yourself on the right side. I, I wonder sometimes, you know, we think of uh, spiritual battles as if it's sort of God and, and sin, and who's going to win? Who knows, you know, book of Revelation. Oh, wow, there's this and this, and it's this big cataclysmic battle, and Satan, he's really strong, and God, he's no read it it's it's over in a snap of his fingers he made everything he controls everything our our job that is our role in spiritual conflict is just to put ourselves on the right team paul's choice of words here though is it's it's intentional walk by the spirit walk walk by the spirit walking uh it's it's a jewish idiom we see it all over the, the old testament and the new um and it's a way of thinking about ordering your life uh, it, it described your overall pattern of living, your, your daily walk. Uh, it, it was your habits and your ongoing routines, uh, some of them consciously made and some of them unconscious. They're the things that over time shaped you into the kind of person that you would become. Paul's implicit point here, uh, the reason that he would choose that particular phrase, walk, is this. 90% of the work of the actual work of sanctification does not happen in the heat of the moment, the heat of the battle, the heat of temptation, the heat of trial. Most of it happens in the way that we order our lives way before that battle ever, ever happens. Right now, uh, baseball teams all over the country are undergoing this very strange process of summer training. should be spring training, but summer training. They're getting together, hitting the ball, running, doing the bases, pitching, all that kind of stuff. And uh, why do they do that? Why don't they just show up for the game? Training camp is going to start. Maybe it'll start for NFL players in a few months. Boxers are training, for, train, get trained for their conflicts. Why? Why do they train for months and months and cut weight and do all that stuff? Because the battle is won, not on the day when the competition occurs. 90% of it is already determined by how they prepared. And this has been, I have to tell you, and this is not preacher hyperbole. This has been incredibly good news for me this week. Uh, it's, it, and I hope it is for you, too. It, there is very good news for us here. Um, now, I don't know if you can sort of recall back to your school days, or maybe you're in them now, and, and, and this feels maybe 
will be scary for you. Uh, but what, for me, one of the most terrifying experiences in school is when you walk in, set down your bag, and the teacher says, okay, put away your notes, put away your books. It's time for a pop quiz. <gasps> oh my goodness, pop quiz. Now, pop quiz is a great idea uh, because really all, all it's doing is, is determining whether you've been following along, whether your academic walk has been good. And I think moments of temptation, moments of trial, where we're really in the heat of the moment, we're sort of deciding, will I walk by the flesh or by the spirit? Will I choose one or the other? Um, they're, they're more like pop quizzes in our lives. And yet, if you're like me, I feel like my standard way of thinking about spiritual conflict is so over-focused on that moment of decision, that moment of, will I do yes or no? Will I, spirit or flesh? Will I do this or that? In that heat of the, you know, when I show up, I'm so focused on that that I forget that most of the work of sanctification happens in the patterns that I set, in the daily rhythms and routines. I'm I'm so focused on the fight that I forget that I'm doing the work of sanctification uh, in the three months of training that led up to that moment of conflict. The, The pop quiz, that is, was actually passed in the last three weeks before it happened. And, and the good news is that same principle applies in the matter of spiritual conflict in testing. That moment of testing is preceded by a bunch of little decisions, some conscious and unconscious. We'll, we'll talk about how to make those more conscious, but that will actually determine the outcome of those moments of temptation. Walking by the Spirit, therefore, means that we will implement habits and, and routines in our lives today that will make those moments of conflict seem progressively progressively easier as the flesh wanes and the spirit takes hold. And I think it's good to think about this sort of positively and negatively. It's a little bit like gardening. You have some weeds to pull and you have some good stuff to plant and cultivate. On the one hand, I think this means walking by the spirit means we should make plans to defeat sin that look beyond the moment of temptation. Make a plan for how you're going to obey. I know, uh, especially when I think of years of counseling young men, um, they would struggle with the temptation to look at images that they ought not to look at late at night, and they'd be, you know, in bed, and they'd have their cell phone there, and you know, it's one in the morning, and, you know, they'd be saying, pray for me that, I, you know, at that moment that I make the right choice. Pray for me to sort of do, do right in that moment. And I would often say to them, why? Why, why don't you just put your phone in your kitchen? Just leave it out there. There's no sort of he-man strength and sort of when I get to that moment, I'm going to be strong. No, do, do the easy thing. Move your phone, right? Uh, make a, that's walking by the Spirit. That is engaging your will to make a plan that will help you obey. Get an alarm clock. They're cheap. I will buy you one. They're $5. <laughs> um, it, it, it will be worth it. It will be okay. Um, if you struggle with anger at work, uh, you, you struggle because you're angry, uh, making it a habit on the way to work, on the walk into work, to pray for those people in those situations that you know are almost inevitably going to come up, preceding the conflict that you know is there, right? Walking by the Spirit and making a plan to uproot sin, to obey, that will make it easier when you get to the actual point of conflict. You already did the heavy lifting. You already did the three months of weightlifting and the, the training, and you know it, it, you're going to be ready for that moment, and it will feel much easier than it would if you just sort of showed up. On the other hand, you can think of it positively. There's things that you want to nurture and cultivate and grow in your life, positive Christ-like virtues. Walking by the Spirit then, uh, today, not just on the moment when you want those things to appear, 
uh, might mean, I don't know about you, but sort of if you decide, you know, I need to read the Bible every morning, but it is such a struggle because I, you know, I set my alarm for six and I get up and I'm just, I'm so exhausted. And so I, t- I tend to just sort of sleep in through there. Well, I think the easy thing to do then is not to just sort of, let's pray that in that moment you will power through and wake up. I think it, walking by the Spirit probably looks like going to bed 20 minutes earlier so that those 20 minutes you can spend in the morning. Um, if you're like me, it probably means you need to put your phone in a different location during that time. Uh, just like you wouldn't have a conversation with someone while sort of poking around on your phone, uh, the Lord also wants your full attention in the morning. So for me, uh, that might sound kind of unspiritual, but that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It's to make those, those decisions way before the moment when, when the heat comes. Um, it might mean sort of prioritizing certain relationships uh, within your community group, inviting people to take another step into your life. Um, it's not something that might bear fruit immediately. Uh, take it from me, right? So relationships take time to nurture, and the spiritual fruit might not show up for months, years, right? And yet, we can do the positive work of walking by the Spirit by doing that. You know, often, you know, I talk to people in our city, people who often, you know, they're coming through for a few years, and I'll talk with them, what's their plan? And they'll sort of lay out for me their five-year plan. Here's what I'm thinking of doing here and here. They want to progress in their career and, and be successful. They have, that is, a vision for future success, a vision for, for prosperity. And I wonder if we do that same thing in our spiritual lives. What if every person at Parkview, every member, every, every regular tender, if you're here, you're watching, and you follow Christ, what if every one of us had a five-year plan for holiness? for the vocation that is a hundred billion times more important than what will get done in our career, but the things that will, will be eternally meaningful, not that our work isn't eternally meaningful, but is so much more significant in the long run. What if we had a five-year plan for holiness? What, what does God want to do in your life? What, what should be different in five years than it is now? And, and what are we doing today to see that vision come to fruition in the future? What little decisions, little changes, little habits that we can begin now will, will we choose? That would be a church that, I don't know about you, I want to be part of that church. I want to be part of that people. I want to see what happens. I want to see what God would do. You know, that's a vision that can only come, that future vision, that five-year vision of ourselves, of our church, of our city, that can only come if we are staring intently, often, deeply at Jesus. You know, it's been said uh, that the, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Uh, in our case, we can say that the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of our Savior. We will only get there. We will only have the power to endure if we see the wonderfulness of Christ day by day. I hope you're hearing it. I hope you're seeing it as we worship, as we think about the mercy of Jesus This isn't pie in the sky, by and by, when I die, hopefulness. This is a concrete reality, more real than that chair, that couch that you're sitting on today. It's an enduring beauty, a solid beauty. It's a real thing, a robust goodness that we base our hope on for sanctification. This is is the good news about sanctification that we've been hearing for the last four or five weeks. Sanctification doesn't happen, you know, so we work hard enough and then God sees our good work and then adopts us into his family. No. 
It's not that we sort of prove ourselves worthy of our love and then God comes and, and loves us back. No. It, it's not that we follow God's commands and then God says, I'd like, to, I'd like for you to join my team. I see what you're doing. You're a good prospect. Join me. I've got a good offer for you. No. Uh, it's not that we show ourselves trustworthy with things and then God says, well, I guess I'll give you my spirit. No. Rather, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our lack of trustworthiness, in spite of our flesh, God gives us his spirit to make us strong so that we can do this. We can walk by the spirit. We can make plans to bless, to do good, to fight faithfully, to choose wisely. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of this kind of savior. Let's, let's gaze at him. Let's wonder at him. Read his words. Bask in the goodness that you see there. The wonder of grace. The wonder of his power. So let's remember our role in spiritual conflict as well. As we press forward, as we walk by the Spirit, never gratifying the desires of the flesh, let us remember that our role is to hide ourselves in the one who never loses. And let's do that today together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that on the cross you won the ultimate spiritual battle. You rose from the dead to show us what kind of life, what kind of transformation is in store for those of us who belong to you. And you didn't leave us alone. You ascended to heaven and sent your spirit into our hearts so that we can have access to you, so that we can hear from you, so that in, in moments of pain we can know that you're with us. And so that, as we learn today, we can do the day-by-day -day work of walking, putting one foot in front of the other along a path that leads us toward holiness, growth, and glory. And we pray that that glory would grow and grow, that our church would be a place known for, uh, here and in heaven, loving you, growing in you, and being committed to one another along that journey. We pray that you would do all this uh, to make your name famous here. We pray, amen.